Thank you, worship team. Thank you for your great flexibility to adapt on a day like this. And I'm so grateful uh, for all of you. I, you know, the way our morning started, I thought we might have 40 or 50 people here. And uh, I heard it was 26 below in Shatek, where Dave and, David and Kim Ruda came from this morning to join our worship team. And uh, it was 21 below when I first checked my um, smartphone to check the weather. And so I'm, and then we find out that the bus uh, won't start, um, which is maybe not a surprise on a day like this. And uh, I'm thankful for my next door neighbor uh, who jumped in with his truck and drove our trailer over here. Um, so, what a great day! I'm encouraged. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 3, and at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles and Bridge Kids. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to continue with the Gospel of Luke. A survey done in 2011 identified the top temptations faced by Americans, at least according to their opinion. 60% said they are tempted to worry or to be anxious very often. 60% also said they are tempted to procrastinate and put things off very often. 55% said they are tempted to eat too much. 44% said they are tempted to spend too much time on media. 2011 is probably pretty old for that one. 41% said they are tempted to be lazy. 35% say they are tempted to spend more than they can afford. And, you know, what's the definition of more than what you can afford? 26% said they are tempted to gossip about others. 24% said they are tempted to be jealous or envious of others. 18% said they are tempted to view pornography or sexually explicit material. That may be a little bit low. 11% said they are tempted to abuse alcohol or drugs. Here's an interesting piece of information. When they were asked if they tried to do anything specific to avoid t- this temptation, 41% said yes. 59% said nope. When the people were asked why they gave in to temptation, here were the top four reasons that they gave. So why do you give in to temptations? I'm not really sure, said 50%. To a, the other, another group said they seek to escape or get away from real life. 20% said that. 8% said to feel less pain or loneliness. I wonder if that might really be higher. And to, uh, 7% said to satisfy other people's expectation of me. When you think about temptation, what tempts you most? And then what kind of strategy do you have in dealing with temptation? In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus' strategy for temptation. Before we get to Luke chapter 4, we're going to talk uh, briefly about chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, 
which is the genealogy of Jesus. So first, in 23 through 38, we see Jesus' identity with humanity. Now, Luke has clearly spent time showing us that Jesus is the Son of God, that he indeed is virgin-born and the Son of the Most High God. And not only that, it was at the baptism of Jesus that we saw last week that the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Luke has a very high view of who Jesus is, that he is indeed the Son of God. But now Luke is going to show the human connection that Jesus has, his connection with all of humanity. Verse 23, uh, we, we see his age. Now, by the way, he is not 23. It's verse 23. And we see in verse 23, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Luke is the one who tells us the most about Jesus from birth until this point, but he doesn't tell us very much. Remember, we had this time at the temple when he was an infant. Uh, We saw his circumcision at eight days old, and then around 40 days old, he's at the temple. And then when he's 12, he's at the temple again. And now he's 30. 30 years was... was, uh, the, the age that identified a priest to begin his public ministry. Uh, is, is there a connection there? Maybe. But we do know that Jesus is about 30 years old. Also, Luke tells us in verse 23 that he was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. Now, Luke knows that Jesus was virgin born, and he knows that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, but he's saying it was understood by many that he was just the son of Joseph. Um, And then we jump. um, Now, what Luke is going to do, he's going to show his ancestry.com, verses 24 through 38, (laughs) his genealogy. And what Luke wants to focus on here, I believe, is the bloodline of Jesus. And, um, you know, 30 years ago, I would have taught every detail I could come up with about this genealogy. May not be worth our time this morning, because I'm not sure I know that much anyway. But I want to make some observations about this genealogy and also compare it with briefly with the genealogy in Matthew, because there are two genealogies, one in Matthew chapter 1, And now one in Luke chapter 3. They are both genealogies of Jesus, but they are both different. Matthew starts with Abraham and works forward to the birth of Jesus. Luke begins with Jesus and works backward all of the way to Adam. Luke has a longer genealogy with more names. Matthew seems to focus us on Jesus' royal lineage to King David... And then he goes back to Abraham, and he stops with Abraham as the father of the nation Israel. But uh, Luke, on the other hand, goes um, through um, Abraham, and, and he, excuse me, Matthew is probably showing Joseph Mary's husband's genealogy, which would be the legal lineage, the royal line 
for Jesus to be king that would reign on Solomon's throne, or David's throne, excuse me, forever. Now Luke seems to focus on Jesus' connection with all of humanity back to Adam, and this may be Mary's genealogy. We're not absolutely sure. It may be Mary's genealogy. And uh, the significant difference is Matthew's genealogy goes through David's son, Solomon, to connect him with the royal line, the promises to David's descendants, that he be a son of David. The other genealogy in Luke goes through Nathan, David's son. So he's a son of David, but not through the royal line. This may be Mary's heritage, and one thing it shows, if it is, is the bloodline goes through David, and, and Jesus' bloodline is even through David because of Mary. Some scholars aren't sure that it shows Mary. It's not absolutely clear. It is possible that Luke is also showing the impact of Leverite marriage on Jesus' genealogy. When a husband died... And another brother steps up to become a father in the line. It changes everything. And Luke may be showing that. They are different. I don't see it as a problem at all. Um, So, here's the point that Luke is making. Jesus is the Son of God. He has really laid that out in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And now he's just wanting to make the point, Jesus, the Son of God, is also the Son of Man, all of the way back to Adam. Jesus is for all people. Luke has been expressing that very strongly. So next we're going to come to chapter 4, and we're going to make a transition into a very important step in Jesus' life. And that's uh, called a the temptation of Christ. Is this a temptation or is it a test? Think about that. First, we, the, uh, in verses 1 through 13, Jesus' encounter with temptation or testing. Uh, here's the situation, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and uh, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So he left the Jordan where he was baptized. So sometime after his baptism in Luke chapter 3, he was full of the Holy Spirit. This is very important. And and we're going to begin to see Jesus' strategy. Okay? Um, Full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So where the place that Jesus is, is by God's design. God brought him to this place. He was full of the Holy Spirit, led by God, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. 40-day time period. There's, there's some parallels in the Old Testament here. One right here is, it, there's a reminder, we're going to see it as the passage unfolds. as It's a reminder of a 40-year period in the Old Testament in the life of Israel where they too were tested and they experienced temptation. Uh, He was 
for 40 days was tempted by the devil. Suggests that it was ongoing. It wasn't just, okay, day 40, okay, here it comes. But it was day after day after day. And we're going we're gonna to focus on three. Now, let me just stop and say, so I understand the Bible, the devil is a very real spiritual being. He is alive and well. He's a created being. He's an angel created with a free will who chose to dishonor God and disconnect God, and he was cast out of heaven. He's very powerful, very supernatural, not a physical body, a spiritual body. And um, he is a creature. He is very powerful, but he is not God. He is not equal with God, does not have the power of God or anything else that makes him like God. We learn of Jesus here that he ate nothing during those days. And at the end of uh, those 40 days, he was hungry. Yeah, who wouldn't be? Man can go a little bit longer without eating. But after 40 days, uh, pretty wiped. So he's led by the Spirit. He's 40 days of fasting. He's tempted by the devil. And he is hungry. The situation is Jesus is depleted physically and emotionally. He's worn down. He's feeling weak. But, as Scripture says, he's also, he's empty, but he's filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a huge thing for us to learn here when we think about strategy and temptation. We see the first temptation of verses 3 and 4. And the first temptation deals with an entitlement attitude toward basic needs. Verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell, tell this stone to become bread. Now, the devil knows exactly who Jesus is. I would guess the devil was present when the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son. There were, I would guess there were a whole lot of clues that the devil had at this point. So he's going to come and question Jesus' identity. He wants Jesus to sort of uh, question himself and sort of get riled up about this. If you are the Son of God, there's no question about that, but it's a condition. If, tell this stone to become bread. You could do that, Jesus. Do a miracle. You're hungry. It's just food. There's not, what about bread? Is there anything wrong with eating bread? No. Is there anything wrong with his desire to be fed or to, to have hunger? No. Those are good. Created by God. What's he asking though? Now, by the way, when you think about this, the devil is speaking to his creator. The devil is a creature. And he's trying to tell the creator what to do. And he says, tell this stone. You could do this. It's just a miracle, Jesus. You've, you've created things. You've done a lot of things. There's going to be a lot of miracles in your ministry. There's no big deal here. And it would, just think about it. It's, it's reasonable. You could eat the bread. You're hungry. And uh, we see... Um, Jesus' response in verse 4, he gives a biblical perspective. And this, again, is part of Jesus' strategy. So this is important. 
Uh, Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And we know the passage goes on to say, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Uh, Jesus, when challenged by this, has a worldview that's been influenced by Scripture. Jesus didn't come into this world with, a, as, with an encyclopedia of the Bible in his head. Jesus learned the Bible like you and me. He studied. He asked questions. That's what he was doing at the temple. Um, he memorized Scripture. And that used to be really important in churches, to memorize Scripture and to hide God's Word in your heart. And uh, Jesus did this. And, and when he's faced in a situation where he's physically quite weak, Scripture comes to his mind and he knows the choice. It's pretty simple. Man does not live by bread alone. That's not all there is. This life is not all about me being comfortable. Life is about God providing and directing me. And God wasn't ready to provide bread or anything else yet. And Jesus is willing to wait. That's a hard one sometimes. Waiting for God to provide. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. 8, which was a passage at the end of 40 years. Where God reminds his people. You, you, you came through the wilderness and um, you were being taught and instructed that you don't live by bread alone. There is a priority and it's about learning to follow God by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Jesus just had this response to evaluate life's uh, situations through the lens of Scripture. And this is how he could see through the devil's uh, deception. And that's another thing about the enemy and about spiritual warfare. It's primarily about deception. It's primarily about distorting ideas, distorting the truth, and people get connected. This is, it goes all the way to Genesis 3. It's exactly what happened to Eve in the garden. And where, where the devil said, didn't God say... He was using God's word. He was challenging Eve on what God said. And it got distorted. And pretty soon, this makes sense. I'm, I could do this. It's a reasonable choice to go ahead and to sin. Um, second temptation. The second temptation uh, in verses 5 through 7 is displacing God. Putting something in God's place. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him uh, in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Now, I would understand this as being a supernatural vision that, that Jesus is having with the enemy. It's real. It's very powerful. It's very vivid. And so he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Verse 6, and he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. He's making Jesus a promise. 
promise from the evil one, a promise from the enemy. Uh, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. Well, yes, that's kind of true. Because uh, in Genesis chapter 3, when, if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, God told Adam and Eve they were to rule the creation. That was a tremendous gift and responsibility and honor for humans to be in charge of creation, to be the stewards that God has appointed. And yet, because of their sin, uh, Satan took over, became the god of this age and the prince of the power of the air. He became the, uh, the authority, a powerful person over creation. And humans lost that responsibility. But Satan, the devil, the evil one, does not have the authority to give it to whomever he wants. That's a lie. And one of the things that uh, the devil is asking here, he's asking Jesus to take a shortcut. Because indeed, Jesus will become a great king, and he will have an eternal kingdom, and he will rule the world, and there's a good time coming when every knee will bow. But guess what? It's going to come through the cross. It's going to come through death, pain, and suffering. And that's going to be God's way for Jesus. Jesus could have a shortcut right now. And would you follow a Savior who gave up everything for an easy way? He says, I can give it to whoever I want to, verse 7, and here it is. If you worship me, it will be yours. It's just simple, Jesus. Just put God out, put me in. It's that simple. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll just give it to you. All you have to do is change who you want to worship. This is like the universe upside down. To think of Jesus worshiping the devil. And so Jesus will respond uh, with the a biblical perspective, verse 8. And by the way, one of the things you, we need to be clear about, and you may already know this, the devil understands the Bible. The devil has, knows Scripture. It was already revealed that the way of the Messiah would be one of suffering, Isaiah 53. And the devil was seeking to short-circuit that whole thing. The biblical perspective, Jesus uh, thinks biblically here. He, he, his strategy in verse 8, Jesus answered, it is written. He's going to go to the authority of Scripture as he thinks and processes. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. One of those verses where God reminded his people of what happened in the wilderness when they wandered and started to worship other things like a golden calf. Exodus 20, verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. God wants to be priority. When we put other priorities ahead of him, they become a god, small g. Or we might say an idol. It's not, not a term that our culture uses, but it's about putting some priority ahead of God. And Jesus is reminded there's only one, and he comes first. The third temptation is verses 9 through 13. 
And this is about manipulating God and his will. I don't know if you've ever been tempted to get God to do what you wanted him to do. Luke chapter 4, verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem. And by the way, Matthew has this one, number 2. And number 3 is the one we just looked at. And so Luke isn't concerned about order. He just wants us to get the point of the temptations. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. So this is going to take place in, the, in Jerusalem. This is like the religious capital of the Jewish world. It's the most important place. It's the place where the temple is. That's the most important building in the world, the temple of God, where God is to be worshipped. And he, and he takes Jesus to the highest point. It's like, Jesus, you can reign here, you know? But uh, here's what I want you to do. And uh, from what we understand, the highest point of the temple may have been over 400 feet overlooking the Kidron Valley, which would be kind of a deathly drop. And so he comes back again. If you are the son of God, he said. So Jesus is challenging his identity. If you really are who you say you are. Throw yourself down from here. Jump off, Jesus. If you, if you are the Son of God, this is not going to be a problem for you. Just jump off. There's good, this would be a spectacular event. Everybody in Jerusalem could see you do this. And they would all just bow down to you because of your spectacular power. And so... Uh, now the devil will quote scripture and he quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. And he says, for it is written, this is the devil saying, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And you know what? That's true. If God commands his angels, that's exactly what will happen. But the devil is trying to get God to do what he wants. Verse 12, Jesus gives a biblical perspective. Jesus answered, it is said, he's going to quote scripture again. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. He's still talking to God's people, Israel, after they wandered 40 years in the wilderness trying to learn. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, some of you know, well, we are in one place in the Bible invited to test God. And he invites us to test him with our money. You don't think you have enough if you give to God? He said, test me in this. and See if I don't provide. That's when he says we can test him. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's what God's people did in their 40 years of wandering. Don't play games with God. Don't seek... I, this is really practical for American Christians. Don't seek to get God to do what you want. That's not what he is about. 
And if it was all about God doing what we wanted, we would pretty soon have all this conflict because we have different opinions on what's important. And God has a plan, and it's way better than ours together. And God is working out a way to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. And God is working a way to advance his kingdom. And it doesn't always make us comfortable or happy. But it's his plan. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's not about trying to get God to align with us so he gets it. It's about us aligning to God so that we are under the lordship of Christ and under his authority and willing to do his will. Because Jesus gave the perfect example of being under the authority of God and seeking to do only the will of the Father. The outcome is in verse 13. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And one of the things this says is that he's going to come back and it's going to be very strong and very powerful uh, in the last days of Jesus during the time of his arrest and in, in the time of his time in Gethsemane and then the time of the crucifixion. It's going to be extremely powerful. But right on this skirmish, in this battle, the, the enemy's defeated. He has nothing else. Jesus has stood the challenge. And uh, G- there's something we can learn from this. James chapter 4, v- verse 7 says to us, Submit to God. That's getting our hearts aligned with him. Resist the devil. That's, something, that's the next step. We have to do that. Jesus did resist the devil. He showed out how to do it, full of the Holy Spirit, according to the word of God. And it says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You believe that. God's word is very, very powerful. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Uh, Jesus understood it. Jesus used it as a weapon. Okay, I want to talk about some lessons here. First of all, God leads people through the times of testing. God led Jesus in the wilderness where Jesus would face the devil. God led him there. God did not tempt him. But God led him through this time of testing. God led Israel into the wilderness for testing. God leads people through life's difficulties, life's challenge, and life's pain today, even though we don't want it or choose it for ourselves. When we're in those times, God can lead us through. And we're not promised that they'll be removed, but we are promised that God will lead us through. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. This is where Jesus was referring to about the people of God in the Old Testament. And here's Moses reminding God's people after 40 years of wandering. Around 1446 B.C. or 1406 B.C. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you. That was the purpose. To humble God's people, to learn. It was an instructional period. We like to call it seminary. You know, that's where you, God's going to instruct you and it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult. And God wants you to be humble. 
He's going to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Next slide. He humbles you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. There was instruction in that. They got worrying about their food. They got really hungry. They started complaining. And God said, I'm going to provide something for you. And he provided manna. It never happened before. It was from heaven. They got tired of that too. God was teaching them. In the New Testament, Peter in the first century reminds us in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, in all this you greatly rejoice, referring to your salvation, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief. There was, there was great uh, persecution going on when Peter writes this. There was a lot of pain and suffering. Some people lost their lives. Next slide, verse 7. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, when he comes again. These have come. There was a purpose to the difficulties Peter is talking about. There's a purpose when difficulties come our way. It doesn't mean I want them. It doesn't mean I want. It just means my life. We live in a world that's coming apart. Creation is coming apart. Creatures are coming apart. It's chaotic. And it's not by choice. You know, and these come for the sense of our faith, that it might be proved genuine, so that it would honor God and bring praise to Him. Somehow, by denying it, really doesn't accomplish anything other than it's painful. Secondly, second lesson, expect temptation to be strongest when we are exhausted, hungry, or emotionally spent. You could also add lonely. When we are lonely. That's when Jesus was tempted. And when he was physically depleted. His belly was empty. Yet he was filled with the Holy Spirit. When you're tired. And when you're hungry. And when you're alone. It's an easy time to binge. On food. Or alcohol. Or pornography. To seek comfort. That happens. And, and by the way, I'm going to put in a plug for a growth group that, that's coming. There are going to be a couple of men's growth groups. And one is going to be called Surfing for God. And um, it's going to uh, deal with uh, sexual temptation. And I think it's pretty quality. Third lesson, temptation and testing are not the same things. Temptation and testing are not the same things. Temptation is for evil. That's what Satan was attempting. In James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, we learn this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So please understand that. God does not tempt anyone to sin. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The temptation that Jesus experienced was outside of him. 
It was spiritual warfare. It was from the enemy of God. Placing ideas into the mind of Jesus. And Jesus was, was uh, knocking those down with truth. Rejecting them with truth. Temptation can come from the outside with spiritual warfare. But temptation most generally starts with us. Who we are. We all have a sin nature. We all had a, have a capacity to be self-centered and self-focused. And it says, after, uh, then after desire has conceived... It, uh, can we go back to the slide right before it? But each, one, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. Desires in and of themselves typically are harmless and innocent. The desire to eat... God made me a sexual being. That's a good thing, to have desire for sex. God has also given clear instructions about that. Uh, There's all kinds of desires that are good and God-given. But here, it's an evil desire. So we know that it's something that God has already prohibited, something God has said, this is not good for you. And each person is tempted from the inside by their own desire, where they're dragged away, And then the next slide. Then after the desire has conceived. Having the desire is not wrong. Being tempted is not wrong. It's giving in when it becomes sin. And it becomes sin in our mind uh, when we start thinking through um, how it's going to go. If I did this and this and this, then this will happen. This is what I want. This would be a great experience. That's when it becomes sin. And ultimately, it gives birth to death, separation from God. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we are encouraged by Paul's words. In the first century, he says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Temptation is just, we all have it, we all face it, and it's because we're human. And there's like nobody here that's so spiritual that they don't have temptation. And there's no promise that that's ever going to happen. Okay, it's just common to humanity. And God is faithful. This is the good news. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. If you're walking with him in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can count on this. Next slide. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Can you wait for the way out? And when it's when you know what it is, can you take it? I thought it was interesting that 50% of those who were surveyed didn't, didn't even think about having a way out. So temptation is for evil, but testing is for divine purpose. Jesus was tested by God during his temptation by the devil to prove for us that he is a worthy savior. We wouldn't want a weak person to follow. And if he would have failed, he couldn't be the Savior. But it was proof. It affirmed who he is, that he indeed is the Son of God. He is a worthy Messiah. Testing is for divine purpose. We are reminded in James chapter 1, and sometimes, you know, these get brought up so much that we like, oh no, don't tell me my problems are testing of my faith. But they are, okay? 
Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. I don't want to. Well, don't worry so much about the joy, but see the big picture. The idea is, if, you, if we could really see the big picture, if we could look back and see how, what God did, they go, wow, I wish I'd have done that. I wish I'd have embraced those better. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Testing is for approval. And, you know, temptation to sin can be a test. And when we follow God like Jesus did, we are approved by God and that will strengthen us and it will fit into the purposes of God as we mature. And sometimes just trials and just the difficulty of life and the pain of life and the losses we face, they're not sin. And maybe we haven't sinned, but they test us. And when they do, they can produce perseverance. Next slide. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses that to help us to grow, to become more mature, to become more like Jesus Christ. Last lesson is that spiritual warfare requires spiritual resources. Spiritual warfare requires spiritual resources. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul reminds us, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And whenever I read this to somebody, I always want to say, Well, what if we're not? This is for spiritual warfare. What if we're not? What if we go in weak? Then we're not going to handle it. We're not going to do well. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Because the devil has schemes just like he did with uh, Jesus. He's very smart. He knows us. And it's not like he, he, he has angels all over the world who work for him and who can follow you around without him ever being present, by the way, and know your strengths and your weaknesses. You know, just think about this. The enemy can just watch you day in and day out and make guesses about what your weaknesses are without knowing your mind. Never has to read your mind because he can't, by the way. And then the next slide, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of the evil one. This struggle, there's plenty of struggle with flesh and blood, but there is a struggle that's spiritual, and it's against Satan and his demons. Uh, In the, the reference to rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world against spiritual forces of evil. All are ranks of angels. In this case, they're demonic. Okay. And then um, Ephesians chapter 6, verses uh, 14 through 18, describe the armor of God. And the armor of God... um, I'm not going to go through all of it. I'm just going to, I'm going to quickly review here. 
It refers to God's written word, just like Jesus quoted God's written word. It refers to the breastplate of righteousness, which is a righteous life. It, in, it includes the uh, sandals, of, of shoes of the gospel of peace. An evangelistic heart, an outreach with the gospel is a spiritual weapon. Our job is to make disciples. It's a spiritual weapon against the evil one that advances God's kingdom. Our faith, trusting what God says, is a spiritual weapon. Uh, The shield of faith, the spoken word of God. And this is what Jesus was doing. Uh, The the Greek word is rhema, and the sword of the spirit. And it, it refers to the spoken word of God, and it's exactly what Jesus was doing when he said, it is written. It is very powerful. And the last one in verse 18 is prayer. These are weapons, spiritual resources to use in spiritual warfare. Jesus was tested and he was tempted without sin. And God is going to use testing to grow us. God always promises a way out when we are tempted. And remember that Jesus gave us a strategy. And his strategy was to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Every person here could be filled with the Holy Spirit. First, it's about knowing Jesus for sure, believing in Jesus Christ. And then it's about having unconfessed sin. So if we need to confess our sin, we do this every time we have communion. You you can do this every day. Make sure that your sin is confessed. And then the command in Ephesians 5.18 is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's about yielding to Christ. It's about yielding to God. You can ask God to fill you, and he will. Because whatever you ask, according to his will, he hears and he answers. That's a promise. And that's a most powerful thing we have against temptation and the word of God, knowing the word, being people of the word, continuing to learn scripture. Um, This is going to be so important in parents in passing this, preparing and equipping your kids for their lives, the next generation. So that's Luke chapter four. Next week we'll continue and we're going to look at um, Jesus um, in a surprising presentation of the good news, not what people expected. Let's stand and I'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for the gospel of Luke and a glimpse into the life of Jesus and to learn from him. Thank you that you sent your son to live for us and to die for us. Now may we live for him. Thank you for wisdom and insight from your word about temptation and testing. God, give us strength and endurance to be approved in our testing. Show us the way out of temptation. Empower us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to see truth and apply it in our circumstances and in our temptations. Thank you, God, for everybody who's here today. Pray that you'll dismiss us now with your peace for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Come back next week, Luke chapter 4.
God bless you all.